You are Locked On Women's Basketball, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to Locked On Women's Basketball. I'm your host, Howard Meddahl. Reminder, you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball, or go ahead and subscribe on iTunes or your podcast listen of choice. Rate and review us. Make sure that people are hearing more about the world of women's basketball. Something very important to me, and I'm sure to you as well. And someone else who it's very important to, and someone who's... I'd say the appearance on our podcast represents a high point. I don't want to say the highest point. I don't think uh, Rebecca Lobo would take too kindly to that, but we'd say certainly <laughs> a, a, uh, a very important moment uh, for, for me and for everyone is uh, Doris Burt is here. Doris in a snowstorm uh, with the power out. How are you doing otherwise? <laughs> Very well, very well. And I would say Rebecca Lobo is everyone's All-American, which is what OB, Dave O'Brien, and I reference her as because we adore Rebecca Lobo, think she's super talented and just one of the best people uh, in the game. And so, uh, yeah, I'm doing well. Thankfully, I've got a generator and uh, keeps my first floor at least powered up, so I'm quite happy here to be snowed in in Rhode Island. Well, that, that is excellent to hear, and uh, certainly, yes, Rebecca is everybody's All-American. I agree as well. Uh, there's a program she played for, been a bit under the radar of late, uh, Connecticut, <laughs> but here they are in pursuit now of Monday night. It would be win number 100 in a row. I know you're going to be on the call, but I'm curious, bigger picture, is 100 just a number? Is it something bigger? What do you think the significance is of getting to this point? Well, I certainly think uh, the company that I happen to work for, ESPN, believes it's a a number with some significance because this will be a big deal on Monday night. Uh, We will have a contingent of sports center anchors, um, you know, the entire uh, broadcast team, Dave, Holly, Kara, and I are just really honored to be a part of what could be historic. Now, I think South Carolina has a shot to win this game, Mm -hmm. but to me, 100 just is... um, yet another symbol of the sustained excellence we have watched over such an extended period of time with the Connecticut Huskies. I, I've said this, Howard, and and listen, uh, better basketball minds than me have said it, uh, namely Jeff Van Gundy and Bob Knight. Gina Wariama is one of the greatest coaches of his generation, and because he covers women's basketball, which is viewed through a different prism than the NFL and and the NBA, he will never get the credit he deserves. But to me, this is a person who should be mentioned as quickly as the name Bill Belichick is mentioned or Mike Krzyzewski because what he has done at Connecticut is truly extraordinary. Uh, I'm so happy for all of the young women who have ever had an opportunity to play for him. I think what he does is special. Uh, and I think this is this number, if they get to 100 on that night or perhaps, perhaps in the near future, um, it's just another symbol to me of, of their excellence. No question about it. And let's also not take uh, SMU and Alicia Froland for granted before we get there. But absolutely Monday night, that game against South Carolina is far from a gimme. I, I think back to the game last year where the interior play was really shut down by, by UConn defensively. But this is a very different South Carolina team in terms of their balance between uh, interior and perimeter scoring. Do, do you think that these Gamecocks offer a bigger challenge uh, to this UConn team uh, than last year's? 
Well, I certainly think they have more offensive pieces, which should give them a better opportunity because uh, the addition of Kayla Davis and Alicia Gray give you two wings, both capable of 20 or more. Uh, Both have proven that already. I know that uh, Kayla Davis has been a little bit up and down. Her shooting percentages for a five to six game stretch were truly uh, abysmal. It's the only word I could apply to it. Um, She just was struggling mightily. Um, I know Dawn has challenged her to to throw her heart and soul into the defensive end of the floor, which I was critical of early in the season. You know, I think you look at Kayla Davis's frame and you say, if I wanted to be a basketball player, that's the frame I want. Hmm. You know, long, lean, athletic, fast. Um, and I just think super talented. So, so can Alicia Gray and uh, Kayla Davis open up opportunities by their ability to be one shooters and two playmakers for what is, I think, the most formidable interior game in the country and obviously a strength of the South Carolina Gamecocks obviously with the lack of depth for Connecticut, if they can establish the high-low game with Asia Wilson and Elena Coates, you know, that's a fascinating aspect. The one question I always have with South Carolina is, you know, you have all this talent. You certainly have more offensive talent at more spots than you did a year ago. Will you have the kind of game plan discipline necessary to not turn it over to be opportunistic but smart in transition, to stay out of foul trouble, uh, to do all the things that Connecticut has done so consistently well over over time. And Howard, I don't know what you think of this, but if you remember back to that game a year ago, Morgan Talk was able to individually in a one-on-one circumstance handle Elena Coates. Yep. So therefore, they didn't have to send another defender to, to Elena for much of the night. And because of that, it, it gives you more balance defensively. It gives you more of an opportunity um, to, to, to play good individual one-on-one defense. Huh? I'm curious um, what the matchups are. You know, does Collier take Coates? Mm-hmm. Does Gabby take Asia? And how do those matchups play out? Because you've seen this already. Gabby Williams has been in foul trouble on a couple of occasions already this year. It's a great point, and incidentally, I, to me, that was the night that Morgan Touch sealed her fate as the number three overall pick in the WNBA draft. It was showing that she was able to defend a player of that size, I thought was really important. But to your other point, which is really significant as well, the discipline and being able to avoid turnovers, it was that second quarter uh, in South Carolina last year where they got away from the way in which they need to play on the offensive end, and that became the true separator. Really, really, uh, Mm -hmm. UConn was not challenged after that as well. In terms of Collier specifically, I I notice that she does not get the type of national publicity, let's say, that the Big Three did last year that you used to seeing from UConn stars when they become superstars. You know, part of it is that there's this balanced scoring, I think, that you have uh, on that end. But no one, in terms of efficiency, is doing it more effectively than Nafisa Collier for Connecticut. Do you see a gap between her current public reputation and the game that she's putting together? Do you think it's UConn fatigued? What do you, what do you, how do you account for it? Yeah. Well, I think you're you're very much on point, and I do think that it, it has to do with the balance because, you know, I was looking uh, at this um, while I was in New York getting ready for, for the Knicks game, but I, I, you know, I had to get some video clips to our people, and so I started looking at Connecticut stats, and 
you, you know, you mentioned balance. So, and I'll get to Collier, I promise, Howard. <laughs> but I looked at something with, with Gabby Williams. She's got 30 blocks, I think 63 steals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't remember the number of rebounds, but she leads them in rebounds. And, and more importantly, Howard, she has 125 assists. She is by far their leading assist player. And so I think, you know, some of the time the eye-popping athleticism and the number of ways that Gabby is affecting the game can overshadow what, what has been a super efficient year for Nafisa. Mm-hmm. Couple that with, with the major step forward that Katie Lou Samuelson has taken. And it, you know, it, it, it becomes more of a story about as good as, as those three have been, they still need each other, right? It's, it's a team that, that has uh, a lack of depth that still can at times um, struggle to score. You know, think back to the Maryland matchup where Mar- Maryland's making the run. They're, they're extending full-court pressure. Things are becoming a little bit harder on the offensive end. You know, they weren't mowing through opponents early on in the year the way they had for the last two with that core group. So I think that's one thing. You know what's interesting to me about Collier's? Typically, when I talked about a player, I know their go-to moves. I know their counter moves. I can almost predict if they're going to catch in a certain spot, whether it's left block, right block, at the free-throw line, right elbow, left elbow, you can almost know, okay, it would be like watching Dwayne Wade in a game-winning environment. You know right. that Dwayne Wade's going to hit that defender with the right-to-left cross because that's what he always does at winning time. What I can't do with Nafisa is on the catch say what she's going to do. And I asked Gino about that early in the year. I'm like, I, I, she's unpredictable. He goes, it's because she's unorthodox. She doesn't necessarily know what she's going to do. It becomes a catch and an instinctual reaction, which I... I found really, really, really interesting. Yeah, for sure. And it's almost a microcosm of what makes UConn so devastating on offense that it's so often these not play calls, but the read and react. My favorite stat, though, in speaking to the balance of this team and the fact that they can do so many things uh, to beat you has to be a Katie Lou Samuelson number that I saw via Synergy this week. You know, someone who, as you know, came as a spot-up shooter for this team. She's actually mm-hmm. averaging more points per possession in transition this year than she is right. in terms of the spot-up shooting. And so, I mean, that speaks Correct. to... She's it, getting 24% of her offense in transition. Exactly. The, uh, the next highest is 22 in spot-ups. But you know what's interesting, and this is your point is well taken, because... You know, a year ago, you would want to get in, invade the personal space of K.O. Samuelson, make, mm-hmm. put, make a put it on the deck and become a playmaker. I was watching some clips the other night about she makes a catch in transition, and there's a two-lane defender that's kind of on her body, and she confidently puts it on the deck with her left hand, one dribble into maybe a, a sweet spot of 8 to 12 feet, gave me a little dirk, one-legged up, and scores it off the window, I thought whoa, that takes some confidence in your handle to be able to do that. And if you'll allow me to, and forgive me for talking, but if you can tell I'm pretty jazzed about this game on Monday night. Please do not apologize. (laughs) (laughs) One of the underrated stories, you're talking about a story that's not being talked about nationally, and listen, we only have a certain amount of time on these games, and you focus on the kids that are in front of you, right? Mm -hmm. That's, 
that's our responsibility on a particular game. Yes, we should give you some context nationally, but let's celebrate the kids that are on the floor in front of us. Right. Um, Sonia Chong's assist to turnover ratio this year is 4.36 to 1. I'm pretty sure of that number. And I have to tell you, I actually asked our video people to make sure we have in, in on hand the shots she's made. They don't get out of Florida State without some of the playmaking of Sonia Chong late, mm -hmm. and they certainly don't get out of Maryland without some of her plays. She hits a three. Maryland's making a huge push. The margin is six. It's coming down the wire of the game. If Maryland gets a stop and a score, you're like, whoa, this is trouble. And ball reversed, shot clock is about eight. Chong doesn't miss a beat. They swing it to her. She makes the three. Game over. And, so and, and that was second year in a row against yeah. Maryland, too, don't forget. that She did the same exact thing to beat him at the Garden. She was the one who hit the dagger through within a minute point. 20 to go. Yep, yep. I, I, it's interesting that you talk about the Maryland game, and it really does loom to me. Certainly Florida State gave them a great game, but I guess part of it is I think of that as taking place real early on in their season and before we've seen some of the strides that have been made by this UConn team since then. To my mind, Maryland is their biggest challenger when you look across the country. Of course, if you look at that top 16 uh, seeding there right now a number three seed. And again, everybody's All-American, Rebecca Lobo pointed out, it is a carrot and stitch situation. It is trying to force teams to schedule better. I just wonder what you think of using that risk-reward system against teams and in favor of teams. Ultimately, if the committee thinks Maryland is better than ninth overall, shouldn't the current team be rewarded for that? Right. Well, and I don't want to talk out of both sides of my mouth because we certainly don't want to encourage teams not to schedule uh, high-caliber competition. First of all, there is an obligation to me of women's basketball coaches for the best programs to play each other. Mm -hmm. I think you should be required to schedule at least three or four. in the t If you know you're going to be a top-ten team, you better schedule three of the other top four. We are in the most in competitive environment from a television rating standpoint that, than we have ever been in. And it doesn't matter if we're talking NFL, college basketball, NBA, or women's college basketball, which still lags in terms of uh, national interest. So it is the obligation to me of those top programs to play one another and to put it on television. Hmm. It's an absolute must. And if I'm, you know, the, the, the president of the WBCA, if I'm Danielle, and I'm part of the leadership of women's basketball, I am selling that notion. That said, if you're Maryland, with the departures you had, listen, I'm, I would have scheduled the same way Brenda did early. Mm -hmm. And I do think you have to, as a basketball person, and as a member of that basketball committee, factor into what Rebecca said was the eye test. Right. Was the eye test, which is you look at Maryland and you go, ooh, boy, they're not... Because if you're the two-seed and they end up you know, and I know they've moved, but whatever, however it falls out, you know, you, you, you have to put some of the basketball piece into this. But I also thought Andy made a great point when he said, well, Rebecca, those teams in front of them are not losing. Mm -hmm. And so they've already made their decision. I don't see this change. It's going to be a fascinating situation. I would say this to you, though. I believe Baylor has uh, as, at, at least as great 
a chance or maybe even a better chance of beating the Connecticut Huskies. I really do. That's interesting. I, I mean, you know, what they both do is, by virtue of getting these massive rebounding edges over their opponents, they're managing to limit the number of possessions of the opposition and end possessions on the offensive end. And you combine mm-hmm. that, though, with the efficiency that Maryland brings to the table with their top three players, you know, notably what Bree Jones is doing. I, I noticed that last week when she won Big Ten Player of the Week, she shot 82% from the field, which mm. is mind-blowing mm. to me. And you, you combine mm. that with the way Walker Kimbrough is just dangerous, getting to the basket and also from three, and it's that efficiency and limitation of what the opponent can do that strikes me that, uh, allows Maryland to be that challenger. But you see Baylor, even, even though, it, again, early on, Baylor really didn't seem to be able to stay with Connecticut. Of course, Crystal Dangerfield had uh, a lot to do with that. Right. I mean, you know, it's funny. We I had the Baylor against Tennessee, and Kim was thrilled with, with her kids' performance. She said, first of all, how many people are going to go on the road, play Connecticut, on the night they raised their banner, and she said, you know, that was a nip-and-tuck ball game right down the stretch, and is Crystal Dangerfield going to deliver that kind of performance in an NCAA tournament environment? I said, well, sir, she certainly, I mean, I, I know she's had some injuries. If she's capable of it once, she's capable of it more than once, but mm-hmm. her point was well taken. One, they have the interior game, which, as you say, allows them to dominate the backboards and can, because of that, dominate the possession game. You have Alexis Jones at the point guard spot. You have experience in Alexis Prince. Um, you have Nina Davis, who, though she has some limitations, can leak out in transition, has always managed to score over bigger bodies. There's just some depth that, that Baylor has and some strengths on the offensive end that you think, okay, they've got a chance. Um, so, yeah, I don't doubt that. And you know, Connecticut's margin for error is so thin mm-hmm. it is so thin and so you know an injury an ill-timed injury a turned ankle at the wrong moment a stretch of eight to ten minutes where you simply must sit gabby or or Natisa and you know can someone take advantage of that in a 40 minute setting it's it's the ncaa is a different environment i think that you know the key is you know, and this goes back to dino you know I think there are so many strengths you can point to, but one of the things he does to me is he never exposes his kids' weaknesses, right? Mm -hmm. A year ago, Katie couldn't put it on the deck confidently, so he never put her in a situation where that was required. And then, so he masks his players' individual weaknesses and exposes your players' weaknesses better than anybody, and it's one of the things that I think is key. Um, I'm just so fascinated by what has transpired there in terms of the kids' willingness and physical and mental strength to have to take that step necessary to absorb the nightly weight of responsibility that that these kids have all, you know, sort of sort of taken. And that, to me, is the great value of college athletics: kids meeting an opportunity and performing under performance pressure consistently. You know, you'll never convince me that college athletics is not valuable because what we're seeing there is, is you know, kind of special. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. And specifically to Katie Lou, that was my counter-argument last year when people said, you know, oh, how can he be the coach of the year given that he had one, two, and three in the WNBA draft? But you looked at what she was able to do and the way he was able to bring her along pretty seamlessly and 
her development from start to finish last year alone, I thought uh, made him coach of the year and obviously many other things that he's done ever since. In, in terms of others who have made strides this year, just want to touch on a couple of players who you've had the chance to see in person recently. Uh, Asia Durr at Louisville is someone who struggled with injuries through a lot of freshman uh, season, but looks to be a next-level player. Curious what you see as the biggest separators in her game over last year and just how good you think she is at this point. I love her. And in fact, I had an opportunity to speak to her the day of the Notre Dame game, and I said, to me, Asia, your talent is so high that there should never be a moment in the game where I don't feel your presence. It can't just be about scoring for you. You know, you have the physical ability and the skill set that can influence and raise the level of the people around you. Because you're blessed with that ability, you, you need to take that responsibility seriously. Your assist number should go up and your rebounding numbers should go up. I think she is, and I, it's funny, I was watching a game early in the year, and I texted Jeff Walls, and I just said, I love Durr. <laughs> uh, you know, just physically gifted, you know, legit, high-percentage three-point shooter, gets it off quickly, can get into her mid-range. I think she could get to the free-throw line even more than she does. Uh, and I think that, that really it's about, it was what you mentioned the difference between last year and this. I think she had all of this capability. Obviously, they were super excited. That groin injury was significant a year ago. She played with significant pain. I think it limited, you know, probably her, you know, athletes have got to feel good mentally. They've got to be confident that their body is going to hold up. I think you see that with Diamond DeShields, right? Mm -hmm. A year ago, she questioned whether her physical health would limit her ability to be the best player on the floor. I think you see a difference with her. I love Derek Howard. I absolutely love that kid. I, I think she's got all the tools. The one thing, and I, I made this point on the broadcast, because the staff had made it to me, um, and I hadn't really noticed, you know, like Shoney and, and uh, McCautry, they both played with a little bit of an edge. I like to use in the the mo in the nicest possible word the b word which i won't say on your podcast <laughs> you have to have a little of that in you to me that edginess that that little bit of nasty that pushes you you know it's not required but like the player who who most embodied it to me was diana tarazi like mm -hmm. i loved the way this the, the swag i guess is the word that these kids would use with it today i just i, I don't i don't know that dirt can change her personality um but I, I wouldn't mind seeing a little more edge. I, and the comp for her coming out of high school was Maya Moore, which is an unfair comp for really anyone on the planet except for Maya Moore. But <laughs> the, extent right. to, the extent to which Maya is this assassin, I, I always go back to a story, seeing her in the waning moments of the 2015 WNBA All-Star Game. Just this absolute exhibition, this game that everyone's having fun in, and... It's a close game late, and Maya decides, well, she's not losing the game because Maya doesn't lose. And she went out and took home the MVP trophy and, and, and took home the game down the stretch because Maya has that assassin instinct. Do you, do you think that Asia can develop that, or do you think that's really just something that uh, a person either has or doesn't have? No, I do think you can. It may not be... Um, it may not... And it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of a nasty edge. But that, that sort of light bulb going on that, oh, you know what? It is winning time. And I'm the best player on the floor. 
Um, I do think that that is an instinct that can kick in because I've watched it develop at times in the NBA where where guys just need a little bit of repetition uh, and and uh, repetition and experience in those moments. Mm-hmm. Um, so. I do think it's possible. And then in terms of Diamond DeShields, who, who you mentioned, you had the chance to see up close now uh, a couple of times recently. Do you think that she has taken her game to another level? What, what we're seeing on the offensive end is she's taken greater responsibility in terms of uh, shooting, but also in terms of distribution. But something that's notable to me is, is she's such a gifted athlete, and you're seeing it time and time again on the defensive end as well. And it doesn't seem like she's taking uh, nearly so many plays off. Well, that's it in a nutshell, right? I mean, this has never been about, um, this has never been about ability for Diamond to Shields. One, you know, she would tell you that her health was compromised all season long Mm -hmm. last year. And I think clearly that's evident. But I also think there is no question she didn't play hard enough for, for long enough stretches. I think I agree with her that when she is right physically and mentally and she decides I'm gonna I'm gonna get this board, I'm gonna I'm gonna play good individual lockdown defense, I can I think she has every capability to be the best player on the floor every almost every single night, particularly on the collegiate level. And it was very much about her playing hard enough because you look at that South Carolina game, she set the tone. She mm-hmm. said to her teammates don't worry, I got gotcha. you. Here we go. I'm I'm here to play tonight. And I thought that that's a very powerful message. And I'm going to hold her to that standard. You know, I know the Tennessee fans get upset with me because I'm critical of her. Well, critical of her because I think she's got greatness in her. Right. But greatness requires, you know, attention to detail and consistent effort. Because your teammates, you don't fool them. You don't fool your teammates. They know whether you're working hard and giving max effort. And if you're not, they're not. So... You're the GM of a WNBA team with the number one overall pick, the San Antonio mm-hmm. Stars, in need of a wing uh, to go along with that superb young backcourt. Are you taking Diamond to Shields number one? I think I am watching Diamond to Shields closely for the rest of the season. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting you say this to me because I had a, a, a member of a staff, uh, and I won't say which one, who questioned the shooting percentages and said, I know she was injured, but she's healthy this year. And at what point do those percentages reflect who Diamond is rather than whatever her particular circumstance is? And I think that's a real quandary. And I think um, you've got to do due diligence. You've got to talk to Holly Warlick. I would be talking to her teammates. I want to know everything about Diamond Shields. I'm going to do San Antonio Spurs level research on Diamond Shields. What if, because increasingly you see this on the NBA level, and you would be better equipped to tell me if it's happening on the WNBA level. But they're starting to understand character matters, mm-hmm. and do 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 you can get seduced by talent, but if the work habits don't, if the work habits and the teammate skills, which teammate skills are impo- as important as basketball skills to me, I don't care what kind of environment we're talking. I think teammate skills on a television crew are incredibly important. Um, you know, so it's important, and I'm going to do my due diligence, and I'm going to know, because there is not a question from a basketball standpoint, if I need wing, I'm taking diamond shields. Yeah. It has to be about more than that. And, and to your point, I think there are two sides to that. There's 
absolutely the character issue. I think there's also been in recent drafts uh, a gradual understanding that projecting uh, tools to turn into skills is something you cannot do as much when you have a group of players who are either at least 22 years old that particular year uh, or uh, have completed the four years of college uh, in comparison to this NBA draft where you're looking at guys who are 18, 19 years old. That's just a critical difference in terms of what you can expect. But I think the two tie Great together point. perfectly. Great point. And I, yeah. and I want to make it clear I'm not intimating the time and has character issues. I'm, right. not, I'm not intimating that at all. I think what you have to investigate is, okay, were the shooting percentages a year ago about the you know, lack of physical health. And then, you know, Tennessee, you know, you could make the case at least early in the year that they underperformed. Mm -hmm. What was the root cause of that? Oh, absolutely. And I don't think it's diamond, you know, so... Well, and, and, and double-digit losses last year, even when you make the Elite Eight with the amount of talent that Holly had, uh, I, I, think, right. I think they would acknowledge that. But the way those two tie together, to my mind, is that character is another one of these things where if a player hasn't figured out how to do that by the time she's coming into the WNBA draft, again, it's the difference between a human being who's 22 and a human being who's 18 right. years old. But in, no term, question. in terms of Tennessee, just bigger picture... You look at a remarkable set of up and down circumstances out of their season mm -hmm. and to the point that I think the, the delta is arguably biggest between highest and lowest point for what a Tennessee performance is as opposed to any other team in the country. Do you think that, number one, this team has figured it out, and number two, what do you think is the ceiling for what this team will be? Not what they can be, but what they will be over the rest of the year. Right. Right. Well, if you base it on past history and know that Holly's been to three Elite Eights in four years, I think does that potential exist in terms of talent level? No question. Mm -hmm. uh, but listen, the, the team itself, I'm not putting words in their mouth, they have stated on any number of occasions uh, that their effort has been at issue at some games. Um, and I think Jamie Nard might have been the, the player who, who, who called out her teammates saying basically, you know, we can't we can't wax and wane in terms of our effort based on the opponent in front of us. That's mm -hmm. not who we are. And I thought that was, you know, great leadership, and I'm, I'm a big fan of Jamie Nard and her game. And Listen, you know, I, with Mercedes Russell, with their big three, with Russell, Nard, and, uh, and, and Diamond, you have enough talent uh, to beat a lot of teams. I mean, to me... Those three pieces, if you can maximize their ability, you're going to beat an awful lot of teams. Like, they're a top, by talent alone, a top 15 team, which mm -hmm. obviously advances you into the second week in the NCAA. And as you know, Howard, a lot of that can come down to matchups, strengths versus weaknesses. You know, I do think Jordan Reynolds' performance over the course of the season that's remaining is going to be critical. Mm -hmm. um, you know, can she man the point guard position? Can she... Can her decision making be sound, particularly in possession ball games where, you know, okay, you know, it's nip and tuck, we're, we're underneath four minutes, every shot, we've got to get a good shot on goal every single time. Will she take command of the offense? You know, even if there's communication from Holly as to the set, you know, is, is Jordan putting them in, in all the right positions? Um, I do think there's enough pieces there. I really do. And, and you're so right. It comes down to this question of execution time and time again. And I, I just think about Tennessee in this macro way where 
I wonder, and I'm curious what you think about this, they have won in the tournament. They've, like you said, been to the Elite Eight three of the past four years. If you were talking about SEC Team X and saying this is what they've done in the postseason, these are the types of recruits they're bringing in, and this has been the result, I don't think there'd be any question that we'd be talking about it as this elite program. Do you think there are unfair expectations for Holly and for Tennessee simply because they are existing in the shadow of Pat Summit? Right. Listen, I view the, the program through a prism that is different than I did when Pat Summit was at the helm. Mm-hmm. I do. I, I mean, I, listen, Holly Warlock has done a truly incredible job taking o- over for one, her friend, two, her mentor, and three, someone who literally transcended her sport. Okay, how many people in their lifetime actually transcend the profession they spend decades involved in? Yeah. That is so few and far between. So I don't think we can look at Tennessee, the program, through the prism that we did when Pat was at the helm. Now, it doesn't mean that Holly can't be uber-successful. You have tradition-rich program on your side. You have a conference who is who has been historically committed to women's basketball, has been one of the most competitive in the country, and certainly by virtue of the number one recruiting class coming in, whatever happens at the end of this season, certainly the expectations grow again next year uh, because you've, you know, you've, now if you can sustain and have a couple of, you know, top five recruiting classes, as you know, and, and Gino, it's funny, when we had National Media Day back in November, I, you know, there's, I was interviewing the coaches one-on-one, they were kind of put through a car wash and did any number of things, but each of them came and sat and were kind enough to give us some time and sit down. And I said to Gino, uh, you know, you have to realize you're special at what you do. And he said, yeah, I'm really special. I've got, you know, Brianna and Maya and Di, and he kind of made light of it. And then went on SportsCenter and, and made a joke kind of at my expense with Kevin Nagandi about, yeah, you know, Doris just said, I'm special. Oh, I'm special because I get special players. Listen, you know, he's right, obviously, to a degree. Great players make for great coaches. I don't care who we're talking about. Um, so to me, as long as Holly can keep rolling recruiting-wise, um, you know, she should be positioned to, to have some success. But I, I just view Tennessee differently than I used to. No, for sure. And, and to that point even, great players make great coaches, but great coaches are able to maximize the players that they have. And so mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. maybe we'll never know the difference between if – Maya Moore had gone to you, gone to a different school rather than UConn, or if Diana had gone to a different school rather than UConn. But we can see the development of top talent when they go to UConn, and I guess it's worth asking the question whether we're seeing the same thing out of out of Tennessee at this point. Yeah, uh, listen, uh, I don't. I, again, I don't know that that's a fair comparison. I think one of yeah. I, you know, I, I'm sure people are sick of me talking about. You know, but you know, you have to remember they've won all their championships since I have been involved in broadcasting. I don't know what I'm supposed to say that they're terrible. <laughs> that he's an awful coach, you know. Like, but to me, one of the brilliance pieces of brilliance of him is if I'm a great player, I want to play for him because I think, like all great coaches, if you have extraordinary talent, Gino Oriema is is going to say, okay, it is my responsibility to maximize that talent. That's my job. And I remember Stan Van Gundy talking about Dwight Howard when he was coaching Dwight. 
And you remember that Dwight Howard had his most successful era as an NBA player under a man he eventually got fired, Stan. That's, yeah, that's but right. I remember distinctly sitting down with Stan. You know, you know, we get to sit with these coaches about an hour before the game, and and I don't I don't remember exactly how the question was phrased to Stan, but he said, "Oh my God, this this guy has every tool to be great, and if I fail to get him to that greatness, what am I doing as a coach?" Like, you you could feel Stan Van Gundy feeling the weight of responsibility that he had the opportunity to coach what he believed was greatness inside of Dwight Howard. And I believe Gino accepts that responsibility and it, it drives him to be great and to, and, and I, yeah, I saw this program the other day where this uh, person was interviewing Gino and he said, I don't need another title. I really don't. I, I don't, I don't need one. I, I'm comfortable, you know, but he said, if I, if, if one of our players ever comes to me and, and any member of my staff and says, geez, coach, I didn't realize I could do that. I mean, I'm not sure that there's a greater uh, opportunity in life than to affect somebody's life in a way and to take them to a, or to help them to help them achieve a place that they didn't even think they had in them. Mm-hmm. Come on, how powerful is that, Howard? And, and, That's and it, coaching. It, and it's how he transcends. You talked about how many people transcend the sport uh, the way Pat Summit did. And it's, to my mind, why we can't talk about Gino too much. And it, what even sort of brought into sharp relief, and it goes back to your original point about the greatness of UConn, about reaching uh, 100 straight, is we've had this sports landscape where just about every championship has come down to the final seconds, whether we're talking about the WNBA, whether we're talking on the NBA side and that amazing Game 7 between LeBron and Steph Curry, whether it's the Super Bowl most recently, whether it's the World Series, the lone champion, and and really what I think exacerbates the ability to tell the difference between UConn's greatness and the greatness of the other very best in other sports right now is that there hasn't really been a significant challenge to Gino and to UConn in a game that matters in several years. So to me, right. that further... And that possibility exists it. this year, right, yes. Howard? You yes. think that, that exists this year? I, I do. Well, look, I, I think we've seen it a couple of times already. And so... Seeing what the tournament brings is going to be absolutely fascinating. Look, the possibility exists on Monday night. We'll be able to take a look up close and uh, see whether whether Dawn can uh, bring that challenge to bear. Uh, I'm curious about a couple other recent wins uh, nationally and just curious what you made of them. Uh, To me, the two biggest last week were seeing UCLA go out on the road and beat Stanford. And one of the uh, criticisms that's been... Uh, put toward uh, Corey Close's program is, you know, UCLA's played extremely well at home, but they haven't had that big road win. So seeing them get that, I thought, was really important. And then, of course, that Baylor team that we both think is just terrific, well, Texas went out and beat Baylor, and that was very unexpected. Uh, not Not what I was looking for out of this Texas team, a very good Texas team, but I thought a, a, a notch below Baylor. What did you make of those two wins, and which one do you think has a bigger impact on the way you think about uh, the national pecking order at this point? Yeah. Well, and I thought that was huge, and I know that Corey Close, you know, sort of I had her at Washington, and 
you know, she keeps she kept saying, you know, we've had big wins on the road, and I said, yeah, but you haven't had a top ten win. Mm-hmm. And I said, I know you don't want to, you know, you don't want us harping on that. And I said, Corey, I have great admiration for what you have done with this program, but there are sort of seminal moments in a program's history that ultimately lead you to greater heights. And that was a hurdle that this program, whether you want me to talk about it or not, it's my responsibility to talk about it. I think that was a seminal moment in their program's history. And now that she's sort of by that mark, you know, I think she'll probably, with some separation, maybe at the end of the season, be able to see, you know what, that may that may prove ultimately to be an extraordinary moment in my program's history. I would say to you, I would say, I'm hoping the WNBA finals that you referenced and sort of getting us to this place, I'm hoping we look back in the long view of history and look at last year's WNBA finals, which was truly compelling TV as a seminal moment in the league's history. Because if you watched on Twitter, NBA guys are paying attention to the WNBA. Basketball people will watch the WNBA. The next evolution is can we now get the casual fan? So anyway, that's usually a huge win. I mean, absolutely monumental. And I've questioned, to be perfectly frank with you, on my own. I, I love the kids on that team. You know, their their shooters were not shooting it well early. It was really kind of weighing down their offense. They were putting a ton of pressure on Billings and Jordan Canada to be great. And so it was it was a monumental win. No question. As to Texas, you know, Howard, and I, I'd love your take on this, I think Texas has flown under the radar all season because go back to scheduling like that's a young team in terms of big game experience i know that she has done karen an extraordinary job you know rebuilding brick by brick what was at one point uh, you know such a proud and and you know in the prime of everyone's consciousness a women's basketball program so you know kudos to karen aston mm-hmm. and kudos to her scheduling because she knew she's like i have the talent to schedule this way and I don't want to give my kids a false sense of security by underscheduling. Our, we are at the point program-wise where our, everything needs to be directed toward March. And that wasn't the case when she first took over, right? right? They couldn't do that. If they had scheduled that way, that would have been a shattered team. So she comes through, and this is where I think you could make the case that recruiting an on-core X and O is the two most important building blocks of a program. Let's say... Most coaches have told me historically at all levels that the third most important piece is scheduling. Oh, no question. You, you, you know, you walk that fine line between scheduling and overscheduling or underscheduling, and it can have major reverberations for the most important time of the year. So I think Karen's willingness to schedule, her willingness to take her lunch, her willingness to expose her kids to that environment prepared her for that Baylor game. Um, it was a huge win. I don't know that I'd quantify which one was greater. Obviously, the implications in the Big 12 are significant for Texas. Mm-hmm. I think they're an incredibly talented team. Um, I think Joyner Holmes, you know, it's funny. I had read somewhere in my preparation for the Texas game, I had early Karen likened uh, Joyner Holmes to, to LeBron James, and I went, whoa, slow your roll. <laughs> and uh, And then I saw her, and I saw her take it off the window, um, against South Carolina, she takes it off the window. She took two dribbles to the hash mark in the backcourt and fires a three-quarter quarter just slightly under that two-thirds court bounce pass to the middle of the paint. 
I don't remember who it was, but they kick it to McCarty, I think, in the corner, and she, she gets a three-point shot that was wide open. But I thought, whoa. Yeah. I don't know how many players in women's basketball I've seen make that play. And it was absolutely an apt comparison, obviously, this staff side versus male. But it was like, whoo, that was an eye-popping play where Jordan Holmes was was uh, was making. So, listen, there's so much to be decided in women's college basketball. I am so excited for the the remainder of the season. I'm excited for Monday night. I think there's a lot out there. I'm, I'm excited about the future of the game because I think the talent is, is growing in women's women's basketball. I would, can I make one point here? Please. On the, on the high school level, I would like, and I keep pushing on the air, we have got to start making our young people play with a shot clock. And it can be mm-hmm. a graduated shot clock, but I've had this discussion with Fran Priscilla on so many occasions. I say I ask him all the time because he is our European guru as it relates to, to college and NBA talent. Are they teaching the game better? And he said no. Mm. He said they're playing with a shot clock from their formative years. It forces you to be a three-tool player. You've got to be highly skilled as a passer, a dribbler, and a, and a scorer to be effective there because the shot clock puts you under duress. I've had this conversation with R.C. Buford, the great GM of San Antonio Spurs. He he emailed me once, heard me say it on the air, and said, please keep pushing that agenda. We need our young kids playing with a shot clock. I mean, there's no question about it, and it would just take to another level the speed with which you're seeing this happen. And, and you talked about Joyner Holmes, and it's so true that you can't put a position on her. That's where the, the LeBron comparison comes in and you're seeing it more and more look at at the WNBA level uh, Mike Tebow is building his entire team around that concept about the idea of positionless basketball you bring in Elena you mm. bring in a Christy Tolliver you're doing all of that and they don't really have that pure point guard because the idea is that every one of these players in his lineup needs to be a playmaker at the very four at the very least one through four and so what I think that does is it serves as a pattern for these younger players. And the bids, it was a rarity growing up. Uh, Elena had a father telling her that she needed to learn guard skills as well. Otherwise, someone like Elena would have been locked in the post for a long period of time. Same with Brianna Stewart. Well, now that those players are plying their trade at the WNBA level, Everyone's going and developing that broad base of skills, and and it's no different than on the NBA side, where a handful of these fives suddenly started shooting threes. And look, now only not only are you seeing guys doing it at the college level, whether it's Martin in Arizona, uh, who's setting all kinds of records as a seven-footer shooting threes, but you even have these like aftermarket centers, like uh, a Brook Lopez going mid-career and adding the skill. And so just the idea that you can take the high school level and you can make it more important to the individual team game that these players can do all of these things would make all the difference because you get further reinforcement from the coaches, not just from the individual players who recognize where the game is going. So I, I, I think Correct. you're dead on about it. I couldn't agree with you more. I guess the last thing... I have a question for yeah, you. Please. I want, wait, before you get to your last thing, I yes. want your opinion on something. National Player of the Year. Where are you? Who's on the list? Which way are you leaning? I just think the National Player of the Year has to be Kelsey Plum. I just, I cannot see an argument that's better than 
Someone is going out there who's leading the nation in scoring. She's doing it 50-40-90. So the efficiency, while everyone is game planning around her and, and, and certainly has to account for Osahor and a tremendous amount of shooting uh, throughout the Washington lineup, quite frankly, but Kelsey Plum is the focal point of every single scouting report, and no one is managing to stop her with this Washington team that may make the Final Four, may not, certainly is a contender for it, but is better even than the team that made the Final Four last year. I just think it's got to be Kelsey Plum. Who do you think? Well, that's, it's funny you say that because you know I go out to Washington, cover the game, and I, it was the very first thought I had, and I said it on the air that day. I remember. Um, I said, listen, you, you, she's a better teammate than she was. The efficiency, she's achieving the Holy Grail. She's going to break the record for Jackie Styles, which I really thought was unbreakable. And you're 100% correct. And we, we have to be careful of this East Coast bias. Mm-hmm. And you could say, well, the Connecticut Huskies are on the key. I said, well, yeah, but who's the most important piece? Right. I mean, I can't distinguish between, yes, Katie is their leading scorer at 21 points a game, and she's made a huge leap. But where are they without the 125 assists with Gabby Williams and her ability to dominate the backboards and play bigger than her size? And, oh, by the way, Collier has been a big playmaker there in every nip-and-tuck ball game. And, and how many games so does Kia Nurse about, impact? Yeah. I mean, it's every single one of them. And the Kia yeah. Nurse impact, absorbing yeah. the best perimeter scorer on a exactly. nightly basis. Yes, I don't mean to overlook her, Howard. But I would concur with you that right now, for my money, if I'm voting, which I'm not, I'm voting Kelsey Plum National Player of the Year. I mean, you speak about the East Coast bias, and I've, I've talked about this on previous shows, but the Pac-12 has to be the the deepest conference in America. There was a point, I, at least it was a couple weeks ago, where 11 Pac-12 teams had an RPI in the top 80, and the mm-hmm. amount of talent in that league, top to bottom, I think is hard to match, even if you're talking about the ACC, even if you're talking about the SEC. There are just so many good teams out there. And if it wasn't a wake-up call, seeing both Washington and Oregon State make it uh, to the Final Four last year, then I think teams are in for an uh, an awakening this year when you see how the Pac-12 does come tournament time. Well, and this goes back to the scheduling point that I was talking about and the importance of it. And, you know, we touched on this in the Final Four, but again, you know, hopefully this narrative is out there. You know, Mike Neighbors, Mm -hmm. when he's an assistant coach at Washington, actually goes to the Pac-12 meetings and says, we need to, to schedule different. For years, Tara was saying how good the Pac-12 is, and I'm saying, Tara, until somebody starts to challenge your dominance and until you start to achieve at the highest level in the tournament, you're not going to convince me and you're not going to convince the rest of the country. Well, we've crossed that barrier, and you have to trace some of it back to, you know, what this conference decided collectively. Uh, and again, you know, the coaching that's been added, you know, the job Scott has done. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, this is... And I'm I'm happy to say Tara's, you know, constant beating of the drum and her desire and congratulations to her on the 1,000 wins, sort of a mind-boggling number for me. Yes. You know, just a woman who has always been willing to and and had a desire to lift people around her, uh, even if it meant, you know, a further, you know, more heart-stopping conference for her. (laughs) No, it's just a fantastic thing to see. And we won't even talk about the alt history of the Pac-12 that involves Destiny Slocum sticking with her original plan to go to Washington and us seeing a plum Slocum <laughs> backward this year because that alone... How, how crazy would that have been? Because oh Slocum is one of my absolute favorites. I mean, that kid is just... 
she's just, you can't, your eyes drift to her every time she's on a basketball court. I enjoyed meeting her. Uh, you know, I hope we do we do justice to some of the kids and the extraordinary people and stories and confident young women they are once tournament time is around. No question about it. And, and I certainly know you will. And uh, I guess that's my biggest question for you. Between now and the conference tournament, if you have a single biggest question that you want answered in your mind uh, nationally, what is it as it, as it relates to where where the national scene is right now? I, you know, I don't know that there's any one. I think obviously the story has been Connecticut. I, I hate to keep going back there, but I have to be honest with you. And I'm saying to their staff every time I have them, are you surprised? And they're like, yes, we're surprised. <laughs> we're stunned. We thought we'd be beat. You well, almost have Gino to Gino wanted to be beat. Gino talked about yeah, it after every so, game. We're going to lose. We're going to lose <laughs> after every win. Yeah, but I do. I think that that National Player of the Year is compelling. I'm hoping the voters are paying attention to what Kelsey Plum is doing. You make a great point about, you know, they, they again, it, it could come down to matchups, but they are Final Four capable. I completely concur that even if they don't get to the Final Four, I do think they're a better team than a year ago. You know, you, you're talking about the depth of the Pac-12. I'm curious to see how many Pac-12 teams advance to the second weekend of the tournament. That's not, that's a real curiosity for me. Yes. What happens with Tennessee the rest of the way? I, you know, I was trying to get an amen out of Carol Lawson on the Tennessee broadcast saying they're top 15 team talent-wise. And, you know, Carol you know, being the analytics, you know, great evaluator she is, is like, yes, but there's questions to be answered. So mm-hmm. I have many questions. You know, who's in the bracket for Connecticut? What does that elite eight the Sweet 16 Elite Eight game looked like for them. Um, you know, there's so much I'm, I'm watching. I, I'll be honest with you, you know, we're, as an announced team, Holly, Dave, and I are, are constantly talking about this. Is You know, where, who should we be seeing that first weekend? You know, where do we go the second? What's the best matchups? I mean, I don't know which direction. I'd like to be in about 12 places on the first and second weekend of the NCAA Women's Tournament. That's exactly. not physically possible. It's true, but listen, Lord knows you'll be somewhere important and uh, shedding light on it, and your entire crew just does a fantastic job, and uh, we are just all, I know, people who follow the game, grateful for the work that you do uh, in every level of basketball. So, uh, Doris Burke, thank you so much for taking the time uh, to be on the program and for chatting to us about everything that's uh, been on your mind. Oh, Howard, thanks for having me. It was a blast to talk women's hoops. You know, I love it. Thank you. Fantastic. And just a reminder to our listeners that you can follow us on Twitter at LockedOnWBB, like us on Facebook, Locked On Women's Basketball. Go ahead and rate and review us at iTunes. Uh, I'm Howard Megdahl wishing you a wonderful day.